you would, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. As we continue our study there. And I will read verses 18 through 24 this morning. Hebrews 12, 18 through 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festival gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I must say at the outset that this is a beautiful text. And in many ways, it is the artistic and theological climax of the entire book of Hebrews. We saw the big therefore, the therefore of how we're supposed to live in chapter 10, and now he's come to the crescendo or the finale, as it were, what I always looked forward to at the end of a fireworks show when they just shot all of the fireworks off. This is that text for this book. And it's a beautiful series of contrasts as we understand the difference between what may be touched, Sinai, and Zion. There's two halves, essentially. Hopefully you noticed it. The shift is in verse 22. But you have come. You have not come to this. And then he describes in great length and detail what it is we have not come to. And then he begins to describe what we have come to. And so for the purposes of his sermon, which the book of Hebrews is a sermon, he wants us to understand what we are not a part of, what we have not come to. And he wants to explain it so that we understand that is not what we've come to. And we can't cover all of this passage in one week, um, at least remaining consistent with the degree of detail that we've taken through the book of Hebrews. It would be uh, violence to the text to cover this passage in one week. So we'll cover the first half this week and then spend two weeks speaking of the second half. But we need to treat it as a whole and to think of it as a whole. We, the, the first half of the contrast doesn't make sense unless it's compared to the second half. So you've got to keep the whole thing in mind even as we look at the first half. And there's a challenge. There's an inherent challenge to this text. As I said, we can't deal with it all in one week. Uh, it has to be broken up. Um, but Because of that, in this message, the tone will be inherently towards the negative, what we have not come to. So it's it's inherently negative. This this is not what you've come to. So we're going to focus on that, but know that the whole point is to show us what we are not a part of, what we have not come to. So that's an encouragement. 
So all of the the gloom and dreariness of the first side of this contrast of these two mountains is what we have not come to. And that's why it's encouraging. That's the main point of this text. So, the overall response I'm aiming for in your heart and in mine is this. Thank you, Jesus, that we have not come to that. That this is not what we've come to. That's the point. That's what I want you to feel at the end of this message. And then we'll ask several key questions to see if we're still lingering in the space or in the reality of what this text says we are not a part of, we haven't come to. But there's an additional challenge with this text. And that is this. Not everything regarding this first half is negative. The glory and magnitude of this text, the first half of the comparison, is one of my favorite parts of the entire New Testament. I love this text. I love this description of Sinai. I love thinking about the glory of God making the earth quake. It's beautiful. So there's good things about this. But the purpose of the author is to present it at least in a partially, if not decidedly, negative sense. You haven't come to this. So I, as a reader of the Bible and a lover of God and a lover of God's glory, love things about this awesome and terrifying experience that he explains. But I need to make sure that my love of those things is in the right way that it's balanced with the other side of the comparison. And I need to make sure that I speak accurately. And I think this desire, I feel, can help us see a few very important things about this text. So let's look at it. Verse 18, the first part. You have not come. For you have not come. It's an interesting sentence. And they're in the present tense. That's the first thing for you to notice. It is in the present tense. He's not just talking about what happens after we die or at the return of the Lord. If that's what he were talking about, he would say something like this. For you will not come to. Or you were not at. If he was just speaking about it in a past sense. He says you have not come. It's present. And there's a seismically different way to view this text if you, if you skip over that. He's not encouraging them to think about something that will happen one day. This, and this is going to be very important when we get to the, his description of Zion. But you have come. Not you will come one day. You have come. Present reality. Rather, he is telling them what is the case already. It is like Moses says at the Red Sea, be still and watch the Lord fight for you. You need only to be silent. The victory is already won. You you see this over and over in the Old Testament where God's encouraging his people like these Egyptians that you see before you, you'll never see again. 
The battle belongs to the Lord. It's, it's, it, the victory is already decided. When, when you watch a movie or read a historical account of a battle, you have a, a general trying to stir up courage in his men. And he says, if we do this, if we do this, if we do this, then we may be victorious. And even if we're not, what glory we shall win. But that's not how God speaks through his people regarding his victory. It is as if it is already the case. And so the author is saying to these people, you are not here and you're not going there. Rather, you are here. That's the contrast. So we are already, he's saying, at Mount Zion and not at Mount Sinai. And how can that be? It doesn't feel like it very often. There's a lot of frustrating things, sad things, depressing things about this life. And when I read that description of Zion, that doesn't seem to mesh with our experience. Or is that just me? But the point the author is making is that worship is the proper response to trials and the cure for unbelief. He wants them to understand what Christ has already done and where he has placed them. They are at Mount Zion, as if it were already the case, and not as if it really is that way if we're in Christ. That's the encouragement that he's giving to them, his hearers who are being persecuted and have a lot of trials and tribulations that are about to come their way. And he is encouraging them to respond in view of the difficulties of life, in view of the persecution they're about to experience with understanding, believing, rejoicing in what God has already done and seeing that they're already there. You have come. And an important note before we move on, when he says, let us draw near, we've been talking about this this entire study through Hebrews, it's not you individually by yourself coming to Mount Zion. It is all of us together, those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus, who are already there in him. But how can this really be? How can we really be there and not at Sinai. In short, it is through faith. And faith must have a very significant foundational role in our worship. The function of faith in worship is to see the heavenly and future realities as they really are and as if they are already happening now. It's more than just an act of worship itself with each other. It's not just coming together and singing certain songs. It is an assertion of a firm belief and a conviction that this place that we call the heavenly Jerusalem is real and in Christ we are there, brothers and sisters. That's worship. Saying words, mere words, even if they are your favorite songs, your favorite style, and everything else is just perfect. If there's no faith and belief that here is where we are, we are in the presence of God, we have come to Mount Zion, then it's not worship. And the point here is not necessarily with these first verses what we have come to. He's telling us what we have not come to. Not this first thing. Not this first thing. So now we turn to consider what we have not come to. Second half of verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, 
and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Immediately, we have an issue or a very fascinating thing about this text because he begins to describe it. The main contrast is you haven't come to what may be touched. But if you look at the text and you just keep reading, if even a beast touches the base of the mountain, it's going to die. So that's odd. He's saying it may be touched, but it's something that you can't touch. So it's a little odd, but it signals deeper investigation. And it's, it's so important that we just don't gallivant through the Bible and skip over key passages, key words like that. If the author of Hebrews has taught us anything, it's that we need to read the Bible very carefully. You can be a heretic by using the wrong prepositions, okay? So we got to be careful in reading Scripture. He has shown us that by uh, this word here, that word here, the absence of this word here, it changes everything. Okay, And so when we're reading him, we need to have that same degree of care. You have not come to what may be touched, but it's something that you can't touch. What is he saying? The point is this, that Sinai and the covenant, the worship, the rituals, are all things that may be touched. They're physical things. They're made out of matter. But because of the chasm between us and God's holiness, you can't actually touch them. There's the mountain. It's a real physical mountain, something that may be touched, but you can't. It's a real tabernacle. It's a tent made out of you know, ram skin and, and rope and pillars of wood and gold. And like You could touch it. It's physical, but you can't. You can't go in there. Zion, the new covenant, the worship, the blood of Jesus, they're all what cannot be touched, but you can. You can have it all within you. It can be yours in a more real sense than anything physical that was a part of the first covenant. It's unseen, not physical matter, but nonetheless, it is exactly where you are now. So in the old covenant, God drew near physically, but like I said, the chasm between us and him was not bridged. Only Moses really could draw near on that mountain that day. And he trembled uncontrollably with fear. And the point is that we have not come to that mountain. That's not the nature of our relationship with God. That is not our reality. And the author gives us an obvious indication right off the bat that he's not speaking about the literal Mount Zion in Palestine, right? That's the name of the hill that Jerusalem is built on. He even says the heavenly Jerusalem. You've not come to what may be touched, he says. So what we have come to is what isn't physical, the the heavenly Zion. The real Mount Zion, the new Mount Zion is in heaven, And the author audaciously claims that in our worship, through faith in Christ, through the working of His great power, in the covenant, in His blood, we are already there. Life, or the life of the believer, therefore, is not a tension between being heavenly minded and being earthly good, trying to balance those. 
It is that the only way to survive in this earthly sojourn is to think and live and breathe with deep conviction that heaven is where I belong and heaven is where I mysteriously already am. If you want to see this, go ahead and turn to Colossians 3. This is Paul saying the same thing in perhaps a less poetic way, but nonetheless extremely clear. Colossians 3, and I'll read verses 1 through 4. If, then, you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Where is your life? Is it here, in this terrestrial sphere, in this little mud ball flying through the Milky Way? It's in heaven. Your life is hidden with Christ and God through faith. That's where you are. He seated us, past tense, seated us with him in the heavenly places. If you're in Christ, that's your reality. And so we have not come to this physical mountain. So I'm getting ahead of myself on purpose and talking about Zion, the place that we have come to. But the point that we need to consider, a few more things in this contrast, this mountain, this first mountain, Mount Sinai, versus Sinai. And he uses a few very descriptive, very vivid words to describe this first mountain. Darkness, gloom, a tempest, a trumpet, and a voice. All physical things, all things interacting with the physical world. Let's actually read from Exodus Turn to Exodus chapter 19. Let's just read the first-hand account of this amazing event. Exodus 19, beginning in verse 2. Then they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountains, while Moses went up to God. And the Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told these words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments 
and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountains shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether a beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. Now skip to verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountains and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because of the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. And Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priest who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves to the Lord, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. It's stunning. I'm not an artist, I try to limit my hobbies. But one day, if I have time, I want to draw or paint an accurate depiction of this experience. If you look for one online or anywhere that this has been depicted, it's real bright and happy and big and beautiful. This is terrifying. And actually, if you search for images or paintings of the day of the Lord, it looks more like this. A thick cloud, darkness, gloom, Trembling, thunder, trumpet, earthquake. And all because God simply drew near and touched down on the top of the mountain. This is our God. None of the paintings show the terror of this moment. Now, here's the thing. If you love the Lord your God, you love this depiction of Him. They're not bad things, but they can't continue. The sound of the trumpet grows louder and louder and louder. Every moment that God is there standing on the top of the mountain, it just gets louder and louder. The the earth starts to tremble more and more and more. It, It can't take it. The nearness of God to any sinful being, creates terror. As if a 10 million lumens light were shined into a cave with all sorts of bats and night creatures 
All of a sudden, terror. That's the experience here. His sheer holiness. Even for, maybe especially for, those of us who are covered by the blood of His Son ought to be an arresting thought, sending chills down our spine when you really get a glimpse of His sheer holiness. When you try with the best of your brain to wrap your mind around the holiness of God. And that's the landscape I'm trying to create for you. To feel in your hearts right now as we understand Yahweh. Even the presence of God near inanimate matter. That the mountain isn't a moral being. The mountain hasn't sinned. It's not a thing that can sin, but the mountain itself is about to break in half. And even dumb animals were supposed to be killed on the spot because they can't draw near to the holiness of God. They're they're in some sense profane because they're just not God. And as I've said, I just love this depiction of our Lord. No other religion has anything like this of any that I've read, and I've read about a great number, either the deity in other religions are so far off that they would never even draw near at all, or when they do, they're extremely domesticated. They're in an avatar or some type of appearing to exist, and it's kind of secretive and crafty. There is no depiction in other false religions of a God who draws near, who is willing to draw near and manifest himself, and yet the world can't even take it. The one true God draws near. He leaves his transcendent abode in heaven and comes near. But when he does, the very world itself can scarcely keep from breaking asunder. So I love it. It is a delight to those who love God to see Him, to see just a tiny glimpse of His innate power. But the author's point is that you have not come to this. Why? Verse 20. Back in Hebrews 12. For they could not endure the order that was given If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. I call this two sequential intensifications of the visible and tangible holiness of God. These two verses are simply a commentary or extrapolation on the text. Even if a beast touches it, as as we've just read and as I just said, The effect of His holiness isn't restricted to moral beings. Even if if an unrational, dumb animal gets too close, it has to die. Killed immediately. Don't even touch it. And even Moses, and this is even more interesting. That specific quotation about him isn't in the text. We just read the text from Exodus 19. Moses doesn't speak about himself trembling. But it's probably an extrapolation from the text. And in fact, it was part of Jewish tradition that Moses actually said this. But if we're thinking carefully about the text from verse 16 of Exodus 19, let me read it again. 
On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. All the people. They didn't set an alarm to come and meet with God. They didn't gather at 10.30 on Sunday morning to come and meet with Him. In the morning, it says. So we don't know how early this was, and it wasn't anything that they uh, anticipated or knew exactly how it was going to happen. It just started happening. And everyone begins to tremble. All the people. And Moses is one of the people. And its intensity is flavored by the fact that he's an eyewitness. He's the one writing this. And so you could paraphrase paraphrase it this way. I was there, and there was no one in that camp, not even me, who was not trembling with fear. Even Moses. Numbers 12.3 says it this way. Now, the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth, Meek, humility, somewhat the same thing. God draws near to the humble. So even the most humble person on the earth at that time trembles with fear in the face of the power and majesty of God interfacing with physical matter and sinful beings. Even Moses, the one who stood before the burning bush and heard God speak and declare His covenant name, I am that I am. That one, that guy who, who through him and through his staff, he, he saw all the miracles, striking the Nile, turning it to blood, summoning God's wrath on the Egyptians, parting the Red Sea through God's power. He had seen all of it. He had been the vessel through which it was happening, and he's there trembling with fear. Imagine that. We can become jaded people. You'd think that after seeing and experiencing all of that, being able to put his hand in his cloak and make it leprous and then put it in again and it's not. Throw down your staff on the ground, it becomes a snake. I mean, this guy had seen it all and yet when he's brought into the presence of God, unveiled, he can't control himself. God's full weight of holiness even when shrouded by a whole mountain and all the cloud and smoke makes the most holy and humble man alive. Fearful. He wants to draw back. He can't can't deal with it. And there's an important note before we get into application. And that is this. The the title, as you can see, I've given this text, is not to Mount Sinai, but the word Sinai, it isn't actually mentioned here. This is along the same lines of reading your Bibles very carefully. There's only uh, four places in the New Testament where the word Sinai is used. And that's for a particular reason. In, in, In Hebrews, the author uses the phrase, the mountain. Because when he says, you have not come to what may be touched, that's the key phrase. He doesn't say you haven't come to Mount Sinai. He's saying you haven't come to what may be touched. So it's a heading. It's it's referring to the whole deal. The mountain, the people, the mediator, the law, the ark, the tent, the covenant, even the Ten Commandments. The mountain is is like a, a, a title for all of it, a basket term, if you will. 
This is not what you have come to. You haven't come to any of it. Why? Because it, what, it is what is may be touched. That's a, I messed that up a lot. So it is what may be touched. That's why you haven't come to it. Because the first covenant, the old covenant, was made for this world. And you and I, brothers and sisters, are made for Zion. That's the point. Now, I want to be very clear. All of the Old Covenant, every single word, is still extremely important. All of your Old Testament, even what some call the ceremonial and the civil law, is inspired and has everyday, real-life application for you and for me. Don't jettison or cut off two-thirds of your inheritance, brothers and sisters. All of it, every single word, has important implications for you every single day. All of the law reveals the character of God. All of the law points to Jesus Christ. It's the shadow versus reality. And they are all submitted or subsumed into the law of Christ. Much is altered from the old covenant to the new. But none of it is abrogated because the eternal principles that were at work in the first covenant are still at work now because all of it has to do with the character of God and the purposes of God in Christ Jesus. All of that is absolutely true. Everything I just said is true. Yet remember, you are not under the old covenant, the law, or under its priesthood. And you do not relate to God through the old mediator, Moses. Bunyan, in his book, Pilgrim's Progress, summarizes it this way. This is a story of a a man named Christian, and he is on his way to the celestial city. And he receives some bad advice from Mr. Worldly Wise Man. And the narrator tells us this, Christian turned out of his way to go to Mr. Legality's house for help. But when he was close to the hill, it seemed to him to be so high and the sight of it was so near to the path and hung over him so much that Christian was afraid to go any further for fear that the hill would fall on him. He stood still and did not know what to do. To add to his dilemma, his burden, the burden of his sin, now seemed even heavier to him than it seemed before. Suddenly, flashes of fire came from the hill, making Christians so afraid of being burned that he sweated and trembled. And then Evangelist, the man who shared with him the gospel at the beginning of the story, comes and overtakes him and he rebukes him for going the way to Mr. Legality's house. And then he concludes this way, speaking to Christian, Legality is not able to set you free. He or it has never set anyone free and can never do so. You cannot be justified by works of the law. For by the deeds of the law, no living thing, no living man can get rid of his burden. And later, Christian encourages his friends faithful. Faithful was uh, going a certain way and and a character overtakes him and beats him unconscious twice. And so Christian is telling him, he's helping Faithful understand what happened. He says, the man who overtook you was Moses. He spares no one, and he does not know how to show mercy to anyone who transgresses the law. You have not come to what may be touched. 
This is not the nature of your relationship with God. This lack of ability to show mercy, this terror of holiness, this unbearable command, this trembling with fear, this fire and smoke, this breaking down of the foundations of the earth under the sheer force of the glory of God, this inability to draw near, this is what may be touched, but it is untouchable lest we die. And this is not what we have come to. No, we have come, dear brothers and sisters, to Mount Zion. And we'll have to talk all about that the next week and the following. Just a few questions to ask yourself as we seek to wrap this up. To help us think about, are we still trying to live like we're there? Or are we living consistently that we are at Zion? Number one. Do your hopes for this world boil down to everyone drawing near to Zion? We can desire a cultural transformation. We can want people to submit to the law of God, to stand in fear of God, to honor Him with their actions. So is that your solution for the world? Just get everyone to to Mount Sinai? Obey the law? We have come to Zion. We have the message of reconciliation that allows us to draw near to God. Reconciliation, forgiveness. The gospel must be leading edge, brothers and sisters. We have no other method of transforming the world. We can try all we want in politics and law and activism and trying to convince people of right and wrong, but unless it is Christ... All you've done is lead people to the base of Mount Sinai. And Sinai bears children for slavery, Paul says. Number two, do you, in, do you view your involvement with the church body through the lens of Mount Sinai? What I mean by that is this. Is it obligation? Law? Or is it delight? Is it joy? That's one of the main distinguishing characteristics of Sinai and Zion. Obligation, fear, trembling versus joy, happiness, and exuberance and celebration. How do you view your involvement with your church body? It's like Mary and Martha. Perfect illustrations, so useful. There, Martha is trying to make the dinner perfect and be a good host, and do, and do, and do, and fulfill obligation, and fulfill obligation. And there Mary is, sitting at the feet of Jesus, choosing the better portion because she delights in her master. Which one are you with respect to your church family? Do you seek to help others see where we really are, that this is Zion? Is this the place... In your mind, where you bring yourself and bring your children to help them see what God has done in Christ for them? Or is it the place you bring them and yourself to help them live better lives or be good people? Number three, are you raising your children as if the only way they can find Jesus is via Sinai? This is huge. 
There is a lot of legalism and morality that is taught in homes. And it's more of a nuance and flavoring thing. It's hard to tell sometimes because you must, as a parent, insist on obedience. And you must insist that your children learn to respect. And they must know a real tangible meaning of the word no. But is it terror and fire and smoke in your home when there's bad attitudes or disobedience? Is it really discipline that you put your children under lovingly? Or is it exposing them to the wrath of the curse? Are you teaching them to be a well-behaved person? Or are you teaching them to love the Lord Jesus Christ? There is a difference. Don't do drugs. Don't drop out of school. Don't sleep around. Don't be lazy. Don't be a drag on society. Don't be a criminal. Don't drink. Don't don't affiliate with sinners. Don't hang out in bad neighborhoods. Don't live in bad places. Don't, 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 don't. Or are you telling them, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself? There is a difference. And it comes down to this. Do you view holiness as the gateway to Jesus, or do you view Jesus as the gateway to holiness? The first one creates children of the devil. And even if you get them to behave in those categories, all you've done is create Pharisees. You must bring them to the Lord himself first. Legalism, legality, morality, and do-gooding will not save your children. Don't send them to Sinai. Don't give the flavor of Sinai to them. Show them Zion. Number four, are you viewing your brothers and sisters in Christ as if we are at the base of Sinai? This is just broadening out the conversation from what we said about children to all of your relationships. What kind of friend are you? Do you exude the feeling and flavor of doom and severity at Mount Sinai? Or do you exude the joy and celebration of Zion? Which mountain characterizes your skill at forgiveness? Which mountain characterizes your level of mercy? Are you really good at at insisting on rights and the lack of compassion? Are you really good at remembering the faults of others and how they failed you? Which mountain characterizes your marriage? And how you treat your spouse. Does forgiveness and mercy and compassion and joy mark that relationship? Or is it rigidity and harshness and the curse and law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Is the covenant you maintain on an everyday level with your spouse more like the covenant that God had with Israel there at that mountain? If you will, then I will. Or is it like the new covenant, I will? Paul says, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Forgiveness didn't happen at Sinai. The cross ushers all who through faith believe in Jesus into the new covenant because of its unique ability to forgive sins. 
Which one is your relationship with your spouse and your friends, your parents, everyone else look like? Number five, are you worshiping the Lord as if he is still at Mount Sinai? Now I'm using this in somewhat of a poetic sense, but bear with me. Think of the woman at the well that we heard about last week, Brother Paul. Neither on this mountain nor down in Jerusalem will you worship God. It's not a place. A church building is nice. Being in a nice location like northern Idaho with a nice view is is nice. Your ideal worship service is nice. No mistakes in the sermon is nice. No errors in the music are nice. Excellence and beauty are nice. Or let's make it even personal for you. Living in Idaho is nice. Having more land is nice. Not being in a bad situation in California is nice. Having a nice view out your windows is nice. Having respectable neighbors and a pretty neighborhood is nice. But none of that is Zion. And if you need that in order to worship God, you're at the base of Sinai. What may be touched. Be careful what allows you to exit the presence of Zion. If you need all that physical things to be just right and just lined up according to your preferences to worship God, you're not worshiping Him through faith. You're not at Zion. You're not believing that you are. It is a mark of cults and paganism to insist on the physical things being just so in order to please the deity so that we can worship the deity. That is not the nature of our relationship with Jesus. I've had many a conversation with people who in one way or another make the physical and audible outward forms so important that there's no room for faith, no dominance of faith in their worship of the Lord. We don't have to have state-of-the-art everything like so many churches spend like they need to for it to be acceptable worship. Because it is faith that gives us entrance and ability to ascend the hill, Mount Zion. Think of the perspective of the church to whom this was written. Persecuted? Meeting in homes? Smaller and smaller because people are leaving their number? Cobbled together group of people who call on Jesus and there's those among them who are weak in faith? You think they needed everything to be state-of-the-art and just perfect in order for them to really worship? Think of the thriving churches in the third world today. Dirt floors, no air conditioning. Cobbled together group of people who love Jesus. If you've been there in those worship settings, you know and have experienced that their zeal and love for the Lord and their worship, their faith, that, that moment is in many ways more real than what we have. It's more genuine. Because it is by faith that we come to Zion. It is an active, present trust in Christ, in His work, that we are indeed already there. So in the dirty secret basements in China... In our day, or in a catacomb in Rome in the first century, or in a little oddly designed blue and gray building in North Idaho, this very moment, through faith, the Lord Jesus, 
our faith in the Lord Jesus, actively asserted and delighted in, rejoicing in our fellowship, is this very place called Mount Zion. We're here. We don't have to make pilgrimage. We don't need the nicest things. We don't need our favorite things or our preferences to be met. And how silly would it be for a Christian in those settings that I've described to insist on their preferences? We need to know the Lord and trust in Him and His work and draw near knowing that He has already brought us into His presence at the heavenly Mount Zion. Enter this room then. Come to this building. Pray with your family. Read your Bible with your children. But do it in a way that stirs up a spirit of sight in your own heart and in one another's heart of what Christ has already done and where He's already brought us. This is why distractions will derail you. This is why your devices will derail you. Because as you are actively asserting your faith and you're trying to focus on where it is that Christ has brought us, the enemy will use anything to break that line of thought to get you away from Zion. He doesn't want you there. He doesn't want you to realize where you are. Number six, and lastly, are you relating to the Lord personally as if He and you are there at Sinai? In Christ, brothers and sisters, we died to the law. You need to, we all need to reacquaint ourselves with the cataclysmic change that takes place because of the cross. It would do us all a great deal of good. If you are in Christ, there is nothing to your credit that brought you there. It is only our job to see that we are already there. There's two ways this is seen. Let's say you've had a really rough week. Uh, uh, You have a real inward sense that God uh, might be angry or frustrated at you because of sin. You, You feel the smoke and the fire and the earthquake maybe. And often our struggle with sins makes us in our minds and our hearts toward God leave the context of the new covenant. But as that book I referenced earlier puts it in Gentle and Lowly, Christ's pity and His love and His compassion is increased when we are in our weakness. It'd be like if your child gets sick, would you get more angry at them for not living up to your standard? Your compassion, your love for them is stirred up when they are weak. Or when we have a really good week. We can view our relationship to God not through the lens of our union with Christ, but in a holiness hierarchy. Well, I've really knocked it out of the park this week. I read my Bible a lot. I prayed a lot. I did everything that I thought I was supposed to do. I finished my to-do list. Never happens. And we think that through productivity and success that God can be more pleased with us. We really do. All of that is synatic thinking. Thinking in terms of the first mountain, what may be touched. The point is this, only Christ can ascend the hill. Only He has earned right to walk through the ancient doors. Only He has the right to command them to open. 
And therefore, it is only in him that you gain entrance. And if you're in him, he cannot love you or be more pleased with you than he already is. And he will always be as pleased with you as he is pleased with his son. That's Zion. And God wants us to draw near and realize that he has done this. He has brought us near so that we can know and worship him forever. And we are not just filthy outsiders. Colossians 1 says this, And you who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Don't relate to the Lord only through the severity and fierceness of Sinai. Don't speak of yourself or your brothers and sisters in Christ as if nothing happened in that transition from Sinai to Zion. Jesus has come. And he died to the law. He absorbed the curse. And in him, we also die to the law. That we might ascend the hill with him. And live for him. In the new and heavenly Mount Zion. Let's pray. Father, thank you for showing us your glory. Thank you that you don't hide it from us. You show us what it is we must reckon with if we sin. Thank you for giving us hearts that love this raw manifestation of your power and your holiness. But Father, thank you so much more that you have not left us there at the base of that terrible hill. Thank you for sending your Son in whom all the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. Thank you for bringing us near in a way that is just impossible. You have done it in Christ. Thank you for the peace that you bring between us. So now our portion is joy and celebration for your drawing us near. Help us see that this is where we are. In Jesus' name, amen.